medical department, only two go to the bench, and we are more than a dozen. We don't train, we only recover. That's a, that's a situation. Preparation, hard work, confidence in overcoming those difficult moments. Today we're still outside Liverpool and we are going to the first part of the medical test. Welcome to this Football and Medicine and Performance podcast. I am Andrew Shafiq, a senior editor at the FMPA and your host for today's podcast. Today I am delighted to be joined by Callum Walsh. Callum is currently head of performance at Alanya Spore and has worked in multiple aspects of performance from strength and conditioning, GPS, rehabilitation roles to head up performance and medical departments. He has over 15 years experience that spans across experiences in the Premier League and Championship as well as leagues abroad, including the Brazilian Serie A, Turkish Super League, as well as experiences at Aspire Academy and senior and age group international experience. Today, we're going to be discussing with Callum the topic of why football is broken. So welcome to the podcast, Callum. Thank you very much for having me. Thanks for joining us. Just just to follow on from the intro, just for our listeners, do you mind telling us a little bit more about your background, uh, if that's okay, Callum, and then we'll, we'll kick off from there. Yeah, no, of course. So I started, I went to university, what seems like forever ago in in 2005, I was kind of split between the coaching route or the sports science route. Um, A few things kind of unfolded and and, and led me more down the sports science route. Um, But I've been coaching at Liverpool Academy for five, six years in, in kind of numerous different roles whilst at university. Got my master's degree and, and with that came my one of my first opportunities in strength conditioning at uh, League Two Club Shrewsbury. And then from then on, I kind of moved through the through the departments and through the leagues from strength conditioning coach being purely uh, in the gym based, working with obviously the, the squads of players and some rehabs to then on-field rehab to the, the data side of things and then leading up departments. So... That's taken me from Shrewsbury in League Two to Cardiff to Wigan to Atletico Paranense to the Turkish national team. Um, where else am I missing now? Uh, Qatar with the Spire Academy, back to Huddersfield, Newcastle, and then most recently uh, with Alanyaspor in uh, the Turkish Super League. That sounds like some journey, so it's uh, great for our listeners to get uh, an understanding um, of your background. I mean, the topic of today, why football is broken, is something we know that you're very passionate about and have spoken about a little bit on on social media. Do you you mind just telling us a bit about kind of the the concept of the luck factor and the inability to judge managers and the challenges that that come with that? Yeah, so I think it kind of started in terms of, on my professional doctorate, it was really about we can have all the science in the world, whether that's from medicine, sports science or strength and conditioning, we can talk about what rep ranges, all the procedures we need to do, what is best practice. But equally, if the manager doesn't agree to it, it doesn't really matter. If the manager says, we don't want them doing gym today, that is the sacred answer. And and they have every right to do that because they're the manager. <clears throat> so then it got me kind of thinking, instead of trying to convince them, because over my period it's been, uh, quite a few different managers and it takes time to build that trust 
um, as to establish, well, why did it become like this? So I started looking into why do managers maybe behave the way they do, which then impacts on the support staff around them. Um, and it, I watched a podcast by the now uh, podcast, it was a TED Talk actually, by Rasmus Ankerson, the Southampton and ex-Brentford owner. And he speaks about the luck factor, which is because it's such a low-scoring game, it's got the highest chance of luck impacting the result. So, for example, if you look at, say, something like basketball, basketball, each team will attempt between... 85 and 100 attempts on goal per per match and they have a 44% conversion rate so over the period of the game you're suspecting in 90 shots that the better team will win whereas if you scale that back to football it's on average about 12 shots per game 22 23% on target and only about uh, 20% yeah on uh was it 20% on target and then the conversion rate is about 10 to 11% so the chance of actually scoring massively reduces. So sometimes it can be a slip of the foot, maybe a penalty call that isn't a penalty call, can have a massive swing on on the outcome of a game. If you look at, say, the playoff final between Nottingham Forest and, and Huddersfield, it was one penalty call almost decided the game. If we look at the Manchester United game, was that a penalty? Was it not on Rashford? That's not my decision, but that one goal could either gain Southampton the point or lose Manchester United the two points. So that has a big impact on the table. So how you perform doesn't necessarily impact directly on the game. The issue with that is then, because it's such a small sample size, uh, a league table is, or a league is 38 to 46 games, is an under or over performance in these small games between three three and four games can be nine to 12 points. So if you put that into the context of relegation or competing for Europe, it's a massive, massive swing. So again, if you're going to compare it to, let's say, the NBA, where they have 88 games or 92 games just to get to the finals, I think they've got to win the championship is about 102 games. There's much more chance of those over or underperforming periods of three to four games to level out over a longer period. So it becomes really hard to judge you know, is a team playing badly? Is a manager doing badly? Or has it just been a bit of a run of bad luck? And I'm not saying, you know, we should put everything down to luck, but if we understand the luck factor and look deeper into some of the metrics that can identify performance, it gives us a more consistent basis than just we win, we're brilliant, we lose, we're terrible. And, And off the back of that, we can get a much more stable performance environment for the manager, around the players and around the support staff as well. That's really interesting background that you've you've given there and an interesting way to to look at it and also highlighted some of the, the challenges and the, I suppose the, the margins uh, in, in between the, the differences of what may seem winning or losing and I suppose filtering into performance indicators. I suppose the, the next thing it'd be interesting to hear about are, you know, how, how, what are your thoughts on kind of managerial changes and how, how does that set the tone in relation to the culture and the, the performance after? So for me, it, it's been really interesting. And, and I think it's called 21 Group of, have established so, so, some data on this recently, which I've reposted on my LinkedIn page. So 
for me, if we if we just take the, the championship and the Premier League, just because it's probably the most visible for everyone in the country, that's not to say, you know, the other leagues or foreign leagues don't don't matter. But out of the forty four managers that started the season, twenty eight of them have changed. So <laughs> that's sixty seven percent. Sorry, that's a high percentage of of managerial changes. Now, can they all be wrong appointments? I'd suggest probably not. So within those changes, there's a number of different, there's resignations. So there's three or four resignations. There was uh, a number that got headhunted, say, from the championship, if you take Nathan Jones to go to Southampton. But the, the vast majority of these managerial changes are when the teams are from 17th and below. So um, 67% of the managerial changes in the championship and the Premier League were when the teams were 17th or below. Now, that kind of seems irrelevant however you sack the manager, but it paints a picture of the environment they come into and gives us context for maybe what they're seeing. So if the club is uh, if the club's really based all their budgets and everything on staying within that league, whether that's the Championship, League One or the Premier League, is they've got huge amounts of money riding on survival. So if they're underperforming and the chance of relegation, they'll want to change or, you know, and, and they'll think that's better because they're failing currently. So if you then start to look at it is when the manager comes in, it's a failing organisation or deemed to what's been a failing organisation, even though, as we've established, it might be the past seven or eight games might be underperforming in terms of some of those metrics where they're not getting the points they deserve. So when the manager comes in, he knows he has to turn it around quickly because he knows he's going to get, what, six to nine months in the championship. So he has to hit the ground running. So he has to do things his way because he's the one that's going to be judged on it. He's going to what's deemed a failing organisation, maybe from a, a more successful lower league or from a, a higher position club that he'd previously been at to get back into work. So he will perceive a lot of the things at the club are why they're failing. And that might be the the injury rates or they do or they don't stay in hotels before home games or their preparations for games or how many hours they train or what days they have off in the week or what time they train at. Do they train at 10 o'clock in the morning? Do they train at three o'clock? Oh, no, I like Wednesday off because Wednesday's better. No, no, Thursday's better. So they want to make these sorts of demands because they have no time to really mess about because it's them that's going to be judged and they've got to turn around a failing organisation. And then if we compare that across the, the top five European groups, 65% of the changes actually listed a negative impact on results. Or sorry, 50% were a negative impact and the other 15 were 1% to 10% improvement, so not really significant. So when the teams in the top five leagues have changed this season, there's been a 50% chance that you're actually going to do worse. So for me, the amount of changes it brings about and the amount of disruption it causes to the club in the structure of the club and all the departments within the club, is it actually worth it? That's really interesting when you when you give the data like that. I think it definitely provokes thought. And I suppose, I mean, filtering to, to medical and performance staff, of which our listeners are, how does this kind of impact on the support staff? See, for me, I mean, 
I've I've been fortunate and unfortunate enough to to work through a lot of managerial changes and and I'm sure a lot of the listeners will will have the same and there's always that friction or conflict at, at maybe the start and I think Neil Warnock had come out in one of his interviews when he took over from Huddersfield and he openly said, you know, I was told two players wouldn't be wouldn't be available, but I called the players and they said they'd be all right. So we played them. So right there you have a manager coming in, making decisions that he's... And this isn't a Neil Warnock thing. It's, it'll happen with plenty of managers that they're not actually medically trained to make those decisions, but they make those decisions because maybe the reason that they're at the bottom is because the medical team are, are, are too soft or too precautious or, or all those sorts of things. So they might lay it at, at the medical team's feet because oh, at previous clubs, you know, we did it this way and we were really successful. So a lot of those structures can get thrown out the window. And the problem becomes that the medical and the performance department have to then make a decision. Do they not argue with the manager, but do they put their point across it in, you know, we believe A, B and C and put the head above the parapet where the manager is given the power to sack a member of staff? Or do they just agree and go along with it? Now, that's not for me to say that, you know, and we've all been in those positions and we've all made those decisions that are right for us at the time. But to be part of a performance environment that, maybe all the structures you've built over two, three or four years get chucked out just because a new manager doesn't believe in them or doesn't want them. It really impacts on how that department is structured because you might have four or five in the medical team, you might have three or four in the sports science and performance team that then become pretty much null and void because it's the manager that's making the decision. But again, you can't blame the manager because why is he going to trust someone that he met yesterday? And the conflict is always the club staff are appointed for the long-term benefit benefit of the club to make those longer-term decisions. But the manager's looking short-term. And the conflict of that is, and, and I've been in the situation and, you know, where a player, we, we, uh, we'd advised the player was probably on the limit and really giving us messages that he shouldn't play in terms of, you know, was not a player that was in these sort of positions and all the red flags we can talk about were, were kind of saying maybe best if we set out. And this was a, a Saturday, Tuesday, Saturday period that was hectic, which it can be in the championship. The manager made the decision like, no, he's my most important striker. I need him. We can't play a single game without him. And in the first minute or minute and a half, pulled up with a soft tissue that kept him out for six weeks. So he then missed the next eight games. So then the player they didn't want to play for the next eight games had to play the next eight games and then was put at risk because he was the only other striker we had. So it, it then burdens that player, it burdens the medical team. But the manager's equally thinking, well, if I don't win this Saturday, I might not even see Tuesday, so why do I really care? But the medical team are thinking, well, that's great if you don't care. But if he's out for eight weeks and you get sacked today we're without one of our better players. So we still need them as a group of staff. So there's always this kind of back and forth and conflict between them. So it just makes it a really difficult situation for, for everyone to be involved in. 
Yeah, it's really interesting. I suppose you've highlighted there kind of the, the conflict of interest at times, but also differing aims and objectives of various stakeholders across the board. I mean, based on that, how do you think support staff should be judged? Because, you know, we've, we've kind of spoken about the different aims and objectives, whether it's from the greater club, the manager, the, the department itself. How do you think support staff should be judged? See, this is this again is a really, really interesting one because for me, and I think uh, as performance and medical staff, we're we're not particularly great at this. So, for example, you know, how do we judge what a really good S and C coach is? Yeah, what what are his KPIs? It's probably yeah, different many... across the board as well, isn't it? <laughs> exactly. So, so there's lots of factors. You know, do we just judge him on gym testing? Do we judge him on? performance in games or improvement in top speeds. I'm not saying any are right and wrong, but surely we have to establish some form of KPIs to judge our staff on because what that then does is it, I don't want to say it protects the staff, but it stops a manager coming in and saying, this member of staff isn't very good because maybe they deem them a bit problematic because they're pushing against them for the long-term benefit of the club. So if we can start to put solid KPIs in for sports science, S&C, masseuses, doctors, all those sorts of things. We can start to judge, well, are they good? Are they bad? Are we above where we were last year? Are we below? The, one of the key problems with some of those KPIs is if we look at, um, let's say, performance as one in match metrics, well, that's dependent on the profile of player, the style of play, and the game model. So, you know, if you're working in a real high-press game model your physical data is going to be really good if the manager is a low block you know two banks to four counter-attack team your physical data is probably going to be quite low so if you look at say Nuno Espirito Santo at, at Wolves his data had always been low because of his game model so then all of a sudden when he goes to Tottenham everyone says they're not fit but if you looked at his data across the past two or four years with Wolves it was always low doesn't mean it's good or bad but that was the way his teams played so can you be judged as a performance coach on that? Well, that doesn't really seem fair. If you're a physio, can you be judged on availability? Because there's a lot goes into that. If a manager plays someone that you think should maybe not play or you recommended that doesn't train, but then gets injured, well, is that your fault? Is that the manager's fault? So we need to kind of establish some form of KPIs, but also the... <sighs> the relationship between key metrics such as availability and who has those key inputs to them. So if the availability is down, why is it down on other years? What impacts the availability and what has changed in those markets? Because quite often we've seen it numerous times. I'm doing some work with Ben Dinnery where performance and medical departments can stay the same and a manager comes in and the injury rates either go up or go down. And that is maybe because they're either listening to more or listening to less from the medical and performance staff. So, you know, that's another factor. So for me, there needs to be some form of KPI in terms of every department in the club so we can effectively judge staff members. But in that, it then, for me, helps protect staff members a little bit from we've seen it where managers come in, they clear house, within two or three months. And then guess what? Three months later, they're gone anyway. So the club have lost maybe a really good member of staff because the manager didn't click with them. And then that manager's gone anyway. And it's, it causes a lot of disruption for, for everyone involved. 
Yeah, that's that's really interesting. I suppose, I mean, you've probably touched on this next point a little bit, but it'd be interesting to hear your thoughts a bit more about it. I mean, how does that kind of environment, you know, the 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 dripping, the changing, you know, if if you don't have those set aims, objectives, KPIs, impact staff performance, but also the kind of costs um, for the club from a financial perspective? Yeah, so, I mean, I, I, there's a couple of different factors. And if we look at it just from, from a purely business sense is we'll look at it for the staff that are already in place. So, for example, if you have a department and you've worked in a club that is Sunday, Wednesday off for five years, there's a good chance that a lot of your staff have organised their lives around Sunday, Wednesday. And that might be childcare, that might be care of a relative, all those sorts of things. It might be that you have Wednesdays off, so your wife works Wednesdays, all those sorts of scenarios that go on. All of a sudden, new manager comes in, Thursday's off. Or we don't train at 10 o'clock, we train at 3 o'clock. So you might be the one that has to pick your kid up from school whereas your wife might drop them to school. So small changes, an old boss of mine, John Iger, you say you change one thing, you change everything. And it has a huge domino effect on, and that's kitchen staff, that's analysts, that's ground staff, that's doctors, that's everyone that's going, well, what am I going to do for childcare on Wednesday? Because all of a sudden that changes, and do you know what? Within six months, it might change again. And your partner might not have as flexible a role as you. So they go, well, no. I work when Wednesdays is one of my days. So it becomes very hard for them to change that. And then on the flip side, if we start to look at the instability within the role is a lot of professionals that when they step into a different, uh, the first team environment, they have a decision to make. So from a financial point of view, I think Bob, Bob Pacey put some, some data on, about League One, Championship and Premier League, sports science and all that sort of stuff. And where is it? I think uh, around 50% or 65% was under 40,000, which I'm not saying good or bad. And there was a, a large majority that was under 30 as well. So again, not to make any assumptions on, on, on people's incomes and life, livelihoods, for me, I think there's a chance that if you're earning twenty five to thirty thousand, probably your partner is going to be working as well. So, if you then <clears throat> move jobs, let's say you go from Barnsley to MK Dons, there's a likelihood that you're going to have a decision to make. You either have to move everything, so you have to sell your house, all those things, at the risk that in three months you followed the manager and you could be sacked, or you need an increase in your salary to provide further accommodation or a hotel for two or three nights a week, plus the extra petrol costs. So if you're earning 35000 you then have to factor into the equation of, do you know what, I own my house in, in Barnsley. For me to move to MK Dons, I'm going to have to pay for a second property or rent or flat share or get a hotel two nights a week. Or the other fact is, if we are going to move, and my wife is a teacher, a nurse, or, you know, works wherever, she earns twenty two to 24000 or 30000 If we are going to move as a couple, we then have to, subs you know, subsidise that income as well. So by moving, you then have to make up their income. But again, if it was a more stable position, let's say you know that you're moving from 
you know, let's say Middlesbrough to Swansea, but on the premise that it's going to be a three or a four year thing and the likelihood is that you're going to be the one that decides, do you know what, I'm going there as an assistant or I'm going there as a head, I'm going to move when the next opportunity comes up as as your decision. Your wife might be able to, your wife or your husband might be able to make those things. Oh, do you know what, I can actually transfer this job to South Wales or do you know what, I can transfer hospitals or schools or whatever. But that isn't, you know, that isn't easy to do. So to do that on the premise that you might be sacked in, three to six or nine months isn't particularly stable. So by process, I think a lot of practitioners then think, well, I'll keep my base, my base, but then they require more financial um, remuneration for, for that role. So by process, it's costing the clubs more money in each of those salaries. That's really, really interesting. And it's important uh, to, to hear that. Actually, I think it's one thing we've never discussed on the podcast, but something that's um you know, kind of discuss between practitioners working across the game. So I really appreciate kind of your insights today and your honesty sharing some of these these points and on your experiences. Callum, do you mind, is there anywhere that readers can kind of access more? You've mentioned a few kind of bits and pieces across the article there. Is there anywhere they can maybe learn a bit more from yourself or, you know, if they want to find out a little bit more information? Yeah, so um, mainly on my LinkedIn, which which is Callum Walsh. I'm not posting as much on Twitter about this um, thing, but I will be posting more links as, as we get more. And that's at Walshy2123. That's W-A-L-S-H-Y-2123. So that's where, where nearly all of it's going. I'm trying to post weekly. There's probably about another six or seven points um, to bring up. So it'd be really interesting to get some feedback. It's been really positive feedback from a lot of um, staff members within the game, but also some CEOs that have been in contact. So it's been really nice to to see the the reaction. That's brilliant. Kyan, thank you very much for joining us today, as I say, and for, for sharing those insights. Um, listeners, we'll put up the, the links for kind of any articles and web links and, and Callum's social media pages that have been mentioned there on the podcast. Uh, if you enjoyed today, please subscribe to the FMPA on our Spotify, SoundCloud or Apple podcast accounts where you can reach all of our podcasts or alternatively, our podcasts are also available for free via the podcast section of the FMPA website. You've been listening to the Football Medicine and Performance podcast. Have a great day.